Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fitz. Started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE Southside Board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. If you have not already, hit the subscribe button. Also, if you are a longtime listener to this podcast or if you just like these episodes and more and are more of a visual learner, check out our podcast companion book, which is now available and has all of the notes from our financial review, as well as many of our other reviews, including basic science, trauma, sports, spine. So um, go and check that out. We'll put the link for that in the description. And uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. And so I, I kind of spoke a little bit about this, but what are some of the approaches used for uh, pilon fractures? Yeah, you know, some of the common approaches, you have the anterior lateral approach, which your incision is just lateral to the anterior compartment um, tendons. So between the, those extensor tendons and, uh, and your perennial tendons, and you have to be worried about the superficial perennial nerve being at risk with that. And these may be helpful when you have fracture that is in a uh, significant amount of, of valgus um, at presentation. So that may, that just may be uh, an approach that may be helpful uh, for that specific fracture pattern. Uh, for anterior, you also have your anterior meal approach, which your incision is going to be next to the anterior tibialis tendon. Um, and you definitely want to avoid soft tissue stripping. So sometimes um, positions will make a little small anterior meal approach and then do percutaneous um, uh, fixation or screw placement for some of the more proximal holes, again, to avoid kind of that soft tissue damage. And you also have a posterior lateral approach, uh, which is going to be between your Achilles tendons and your perennial tendons. And just like what we spoke about earlier when we talked about ankle arthroscopy and our posterior lateral portal with the sural nerve being at risk, again, the sural nerve is going to be at risk during this approach. Now, we, we, some, we mentioned a little bit of this a little bit earlier, but just, I guess, uh, for repetition's sake, what are some techniques that are used to decrease wound problems with open reduction and internal fixation with uh, these pilon fractures? Because we know that, again, that's a problem. You're now, anytime you're on the ankle, you want your wounds to heal. Yeah, so uh, obviously that staged fixation, temporary X-fix, letting the soft tissues kind of uh, decrease their inflammatory uh, cascade and so that you don't cause that kind of second hit phenomenon. Um, minimal incisions, good dissection, minimal soft tissue stripping, not 
uh, kind of blowing through the soft tissues and getting down to the bone as fast as possible. Like you're really doing diligent work with your incision placement. Um, you want to, so if you are going to use two separate uh, approaches, um, you want about five to seven centimeters between the ankle incisions to avoid necrosis of the uh, intermediate skin between those. Um, and uh, that is another reason why some people will fix the fibula at the time of the original surgery um, is some will say that the two weeks between those sort of surgeries will give the fibula wound time to heal and you can move the other incision a little bit closer to the fibula because it's not the both skin incisions are not healing at the same time but again it's more safe to do about five to seven centimeters between and then also these uh i mean every company has them it doesn't matter which which company you use but they all have pre-contoured uh, anteromedial, anterolateral plates, posterior plates, this or that or whatever. And um, they help with percutaneous insertion. So you don't have to do these big open incisions. You can open it around where most of the reduction has to occur. And then you use kind of a mini minimally invasive uh, sliding of the plate up the bone for a percutaneous insertion more proximally. Um, and then also uh, wound vax, incisional wound vax. Uh, do help decrease um, wound complications in these patients. So uh, either just for a couple of days after surgery, or if you have a patient who is well set up with insurance, you can send them home with a, with an incisional vac. Um, but uh, because these are high energy, these are in very high risk patients, typically, what are some of the complications seen in uh, treating these plafond fractures? Yeah, so these you know, these, these pilon or these plafond injuries can significantly affect the patient quality of life. I remember seeing a, a question that uh, having a pilon fracture is actually worse than having AIDS. And that was uh, from a study that kind of looked at the quality of life. And so pilon fractures are worse than having AIDS, having a myocardial infection, having diabetes, or being a polytrauma patient. That, so that's how, how bad, <laughs> you know, how bad these injuries really can be. Um, Post-traumatic arthritis, very common, may, seem, may be seen in up to three out of every four patients or 75% of patients. Uh, these patients can also have malunions, uh, nonunions, which are, are, are more common in patients that have open fractures, patients that have really comminuted fractures or devascularized fractures, you know, where you go and, um, and strip all the soft tissues into a huge approach. Uh, and you devascularize the bone, that can also lead you towards a non-union, which is why, you know, these minimal incisions and soft tissue and minimal soft tissue stripping, uh, those techniques are used to help decrease some of these problems. And also you can have infections and wound problems, which may require multiple procedures. Um, you know, these can be life-changing injuries, devastating injuries, and and be needed uh, and, and need stage treatment. You know, if you have an infected pilon fracture, you know, that is, that is, that's bad. That's not a, that's not a good thing to have. Um, and that's, that's, that's probably won't lead to the best outcome. Um, what about, what about patient socioeconomic factors? Can, can those be predictive of outcomes in, in patients with pilon fractures? 
unfortunately, yes. Uh, they they shouldn't necessarily be, uh, but um, they definitely can affect the outcome. And I mean, a lot of it's really due to access to care, um, access to post-operative rehabilitation, access to a clean post-op environment. I mean, if you're if you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you you crashed your uh, four wheeler out on your property and you have a pylon versus somebody who is making less than minimum wage and and all of that, I mean, their their treatment and their post op course is going to be vastly different, unfortunately, and so the the high risk patients, the the ones that uh, are at a very uh, high risk for these complications, you need to keep a close eye on them and really try and get them the best care possible because um, just their just the fact of where they are in a socioeconomic status can uh, affect their their outcomes. And so I guess kind of moving away from the pylons, those are really all the points you'll be tested on for pylons just because there's uh, it's a just knowing it's a devastating injury, a lot of complications associated with it and multiple approaches uh, outside of that. Oh, and stage treatment for them outside of that. They're like I said, they're not going to give you a CT scan and ask you to uh, are you going to fix this anterior, medial, anterior, lateral, or posterior, just because it's, that's an unfair question. So um, I think we've pretty much wrapped up pylons, but we can go on to uh, something called a, a snowboarder's ankle. What is, what is that injury and what's the treatment? Yeah. So snowboarder's ankle, uh, again, this typically happens in snowboarders, <laughs> which is why it's called snowboarder's ankle. Um, this is actually when you have a fracture of the lateral process of the talus. So, you know, there are different treatment options. If it's not displaced, as with most things, you can likely treat it in a cast or some form of immobilization and keep them not weight bearing. Uh, if it's a displaced fracture, you may be able to fix it. Uh, so open reduction, internal fixation. If you have a large fragments versus if there are a bunch of small fragments, it may be something that you excise. But again, snowboarder's ankle is going to be known as a fracture of the lateral process of the talus. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access Rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. Uh, now, since we are on the talus, what artery provides most of the blood supply to the Taylor body? Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this later on, maybe with Taylor neck fractures, but the, the talus is a very moody 
and uh, difficult bone to treat because it does not have, I believe, any muscular attachments to it. I think there's only ligamentous attachments. And because of this lack of uh, muscular attachments, that the blood supply is limited. And so it gets most of the blood supply from the uh, artery of the tarsal canal, which is a branch off the posterior tibia, uh, the posterior tibial artery. And then it also gets uh, blood supply from the deltoid artery, which is uh, the medial portion. Obviously, that's where the deltoid ligament is, is, is on the medial side. So um, the deltoid artery and the artery of the tarsal canal are the two important uh, 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 vessels for blood supply to the Taylor body. And then what arteries provide most of the blood supply to the Taylor head and neck? So this is going to be the artery of the tarsal sinus. So this is actually going to be a branch off the um, anterior tibial artery and the peroneal artery. So again, the artery of the tarsal sinus is going to provide most of the blood supply to the Taylor head and neck. Um, and speaking of Taylor, Taylor neck, uh, what is the classification for Taylor neck fractures? This is something that we somehow, at least where, where I'm at, we see these, um, rather, I guess, more frequently. So we go over these a lot, but what are, uh, what is the classification for Taylor neck fractures? Uh, yeah, so this is going to be that Hawkins classification and, uh, it's going to, it's one through four. Uh, one is a non-displaced fracture of the Taylor neck. And then the rest of these are not necessarily a classification of Taylor neck fractures. Like it's not going to describe an oblique fracture or a comminuted fracture or a fracture that extends in any particular direction, but it's what also happens to the ankle with a Taylor neck fracture. So again, one is a non-displaced Taylor neck fracture with uh, reduced joints around the talus. Uh, a Hawkins two is a Taylor neck fracture with a subtalar dislocation. A three is a neck fracture with subtalar and tibiotalar dislocation. And then a type four is a neck fracture with subtalar, tibiotalar, and talonavicular dislocations. And obviously as you go up uh, with increased Hawkins severity, what is the complication you see with that? Yeah. So as you go up, you know, these fractures are going to get more and more displaced. So you're going to have a higher risk of having Taylor osteonecrosis. This is going to be due to disruption of the blood supply. I mean, you can imagine if you have a Taylor neck fracture that is where there's no articulations in the subtalar joint, the tibiotalar joint, or the talonavicular joint, the amount of energy that has gone through, uh, through that fracture and the amount of disruption to the soft tissues, uh, which include the arteries and the veins and, the, you know, the blood supply, um, they could lead to Taylor osteonecrosis. Now, which fractures of the Taylor neck can be treated non-operatively? Uh, so those ones are going to be the Hawkins one. Uh, obviously, they're non-displaced. You're uh, usually getting a CT scan to see these um, because they are non-displaced. It's difficult to pick up on an x-ray. Uh, but Hawkins 1, depending on, uh, some people may call them like Hawkins 1.5, where 
there is a, a displacement of the Taylor neck fracture, but there's no associated dislocation with it. So uh, technically it's a Hawkins one because there's no dislocation, but it still needs surgery. So you can treat them with percutaneous screws uh, due to the location of the navicular uh, on the Taylor head. It's very difficult to get A to P screws. So you can do percutaneous posterior to anterior screws in the talus, uh, which is kind of a, it's a actually kind of a fun uh, operation um, can get a little dicey because you are uh, working around a lot of important structures in the posterior portion of the ankle. But again, if you do uh, adequate dissection and, and all that stuff, then you can typically protect yourself from all of that stuff. And what, uh, I mean, obviously we just talked about which ones are treated non-operatively, <laughs> which ones are treated operatively. Yeah. Most of our Hawkins two through four. So again, um, two being our subtalar dislocation, three being we have dislocation of the subtalar and tibiotalar joints, and four being you have a dislocation of all three subtalar, tibiotalar, and talonavicular. So our Hawkins two through fours are the ones that are typically should be treated operatively, and you can treat these with open reduction internal fixation. Uh, you could treat these again with your fixation construct can be A to P screws. It can also be uh, you can also plate the talus as well. Um, now something a little bit different, but what is the Hawkins sign and what does that indicate? Uh, Hawkins sign is actually something you want. Uh, it's a, it's, you see it on the AP view and it's a subchondral lucency on, uh, radiographs that's typically seen around six to eight weeks. And what it indicates is, uh, vascularity to the, uh, Taylor uh, uh, head, excuse me, Taylor body, not Taylor head, uh, because of uh, this, this lucency means that the osteo class are doing their job uh, and creating this lucency. Uh, and the only way that they would be doing their job is by having blood supply to it. So uh, when bone remodels, like we talked about in basic science, the osteoclasts lead the way, and then the osteoblasts fill in uh, the spaces behind them because of the cutting cones technique or um, uh, whatever else they do. And so you want that subchondral lucency uh, on the AP radiograph. Um, and then what is the most common complication in patients with uh, Taylor neck fractures? It's going to be subtalar arthritis. You know, it's just like a, it's this very similar theme that we, that we get with these articular injuries. And we talked about the plateau. We talked about, you know, post-traumatic arthritis. And we talked about ankle fractures, post-traumatic arthritis. And we talked about tailor neck fractures. Again, something similar, subtalar arthritis. Uh, what are some other complications, though, that could be seen in patients that have these tailor neck fractures? And maybe some, some possible treatments for some of these different things that could be seen. Uh, yeah, so tibiotalar arthritis is another uh, common one. And then you may actually get tested on this. It, it's a uh, varus malunion. And basically what they are going to show you is medial tailor neck comminution. And whenever you go in to fix that, 
if you try and fix a medial Taylor neck comminution with screws only, that talus will collapse into varus and you'll get a varus malunion and uh, altered uh, mechanics in the uh, ankle and with walking and they'll have pain and uh, all of that stuff. Um, and so when you have medial Taylor neck comminution based on a axial CT scan, you typically want to fix that with a plate and locking screws because you're going to bone graft that void medially and kind of jack it open and prevent that uh, talus from collapsing into varus. And then uh, obviously with uh, increasing uh, Hawkins classifications, you get osteonecrosis of the talus and you're gonna eventually probably do a TTC uh, fusion for them. And what, what uh, I guess we're kind of moving on from uh, Taylor neck fractures into subtalar dislocations, what direction is most common? Yes, and, and we need to remember that this is going to be based on the most distal bone. So a subtalar dislocation, the most common direction is going to be medial. So it'll almost seem like the talus is lateral, but you're actually are basing the direction of the dislocation on the distal, on the most distal aspect. Um, so again, a medial subtalar dislocation is going to be the most common, but lateral subtalar dislocations are most likely to be open. And we actually had one, um, we had a, we actually had a lateral subtalar dislocation that was actually, it was a fracture dislocation and it was extruded out and um, I remember we were taking it back for IND and, you know, a close reduction. And I probably struggled for like 20 minutes trying to reduce it back, like trying to reduce the fracture back to where it was and then reduce that back inside of the ankle. It took a while. Um, and we put in the X-Fix afterwards. But, um, you know, though the medial, again, is going to be the most common direction for subtalar dislocation lateral more likely to be open. And a treatment for these is uh, just for simple subtalar dislocations, not fracture dislocations, but just the subtalar dislocations. Uh, so the treatment is going to be a closed reduction uh, with casting. Now, uh, what structures uh, may be interposed in patients with ir irreducible medial and lateral subtalar dislocations? Yeah, and you'll see this uh, with... Um like with these open uh, fractures, where if you can't get it reduced, you're gonna have to kind of stick your finger in the wound and pull these structures out of place to get that subtalar dislocation reduced. Um, but if you have a medial dislocation, and just like you said, it's based on the distal fragments, so the ankle will be in uh, varus, um, right? Yeah, the ankle will be in varus. Uh, the uh, EDB, uh, the extensor digitorum brevis, is most likely interposed, uh, and that is the, uh, I mean, that'll be the test answer. Um, they're probably not going to um, test you on really anything else, or the, <laughs> the head of the talus is actually going to impinge on the structures and that needs to be cleared with uh, forced dorsiflexion of the head of the talus to get that the reduction medial. 
or to get the reduction lateral. Um, and then the lateral uh, dislocations. So that means that the calcaneus is going lateral to the talus. Um, it's going to be the things that are actually more lateral structures. So uh, things like uh, the uh, peroneus tertius or the uh, uh, FHL are going to be interposed in that uh, uh, sort of dislocation. I think FHL is probably the more commonly tested one um, yeah. just is to be interposed. And, and that's just like you said, lateral is more likely to be open and lateral is where you're going to have to, and I have had to do this on call before, you reach your hand in, you flex the great toe down to make the FHL tendon more lax and put the foot in a little bit of uh, plantar flexion so you can release the FHL from the space and put the dislocation back in place or reduce that dislocation. So, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, those are... Those are always fun to do <laughs> when they come in. Exactly. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I think, you know, I think this is a good, we, we've talked a, a good amount on um, some ankle fractures and some, we started some foot stuff, but I think we could save some of the foot stuff for our, our next, uh, for the next episode. For those that are listening, go ahead and uh, hit the subscribe button. Let us know how much you like these, these episodes and uh, stay tuned because we are working on a companion book, uh, which just, you know, it just takes a little while. <laughs> so yeah. uh, and, until next time.